0: Thank you so much thank you please be seated it sure is great to be here and, and be back and although i am uh, a little bummed i'll be honest with you i did not realize that today was ugly sweater day I totally would have brought an ugly sweater with me, if nothing else, just because this is not Phoenix weather anymore. We found that out last night when we showed up, and uh, so I apologize if you get a little bit of a chilly uh, handshake from me today. But uh, so glad to be here, and what a wonderful, wonderful time of year it is Christmas decorations, Christmas music, Christmas sweaters, and uh, so I apologize this is not going to be a Christmas message, uh, but I I do believe it is the message God has for us for this hour. And so I invite you to take your Bible with me this morning, and let's turn to the book of Galatians, and chapter 2 please, Galatians chapter number 2. While you're turning there, I'd just like to share with you a little bit of my experiences uh, here at the college, and, and I'll kind of lead into the message, and a couple of verses we'll read in just a moment. But I grew up in South Carolina, and really i never heard of West Coast until a uh, Sunday night that the visiting preacher handed me a trifold pamphlet introducing the college to me, and that man's name was Don Sisk. And Dr. Sisk introduced the college to me, and uh, I had surrendered to preach, and I was trying to decide the next step of college, uh, but I wasn't really too interested in going all the way out to California, but my parents encouraged me to go out there and said, you should just see it. I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll give that some thought, and they said, no, you should go see it. We've got a plane ticket for you, for you and your dad to go and see it and I said, "Well, okay, uh, when is that going to be?" And they told me the date and I looked at the date on the calendar and it was my the weekend of my senior prom. And I said, "Well, mom and dad, it's the weekend of senior prom." And and they said, do you have a date? Did you have a smoking hot date? No, but that's beside the point. I mean, it's, it's my senior prom. And So what'd you do? Well, I got on the plane. and My dad and I and a buddy of my youth group and his dad, we came out and we saw the school and uh, I realized I had a little bit of an attitude adjustment on the plane. Over there, I realized if my parents were going to invest this much already in me so I could find and I could follow God's will, then perhaps I better take this trip a little more seriously. And we showed up at the school and to hasten things, uh, but by the time I got back on the plane to go home, I knew this was the place that God had for me. Then the time came for me to be dropped off that fall, and reality hit that I had just traveled 2,000 miles across the country, and I didn't know a single person. Uh, But my family had always been the type of get involved in everything. Go to every church service, every church workday, every church function, every activity. You just show up, you volunteer, you'll be there. And so the time rolled around. It was time to uh, have the college days and activities. And it was announced that there would be a drama and an audition taking place for that drama. And I decided to try out an audition. And I'd been in a couple of plays in middle school. I thought, hey, it's going to be pretty fun. And so the play that year, the drama, it was telling the story of Ruth. And I was cast as the role of Boaz. Now you need to understand something else. I also come from a public school background. All right? So, when I, at the school that I went to and grew up in, there was no handbooks, there was no demerits. All that was just brand new to me. I didn't have a problem with it while I was here. It was just a different. It was an, an adjustment that I needed to make. And so, I, 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 in my experiences in school, in my plays that I'd been in, I, I just thought you follow the script. I mean, in fact, Tom Hanks, Sheriff Woody, he said the best advice that had ever been given to him as a young actor, the director told him, be on time, know your lines, and come with a head full of ideas. He said, that's the best idea, That best advice anybody ever gave me. Show up, do your job. And do it right. Do it to the best of your ability. That's still pretty good advice, isn't it? And so I just thought I'd, I'd read the script and follow the script, what it says. And so you know how the story goes of Ruth and Boaz. Uh, Boaz shows up to redeem Ruth, and he has to talk to the next family member, and, and she's gonna, he's going uh, to get him out of the way, and, and uh, so he can redeem Ruth and take her to be his wife. And I'm reading the script, and this is what the script says when that scene is over. In parentheses, so after that scene, here's what it says. Boaz takes Ruth by the hand I read <laughs> I read that and I say okay and so we practice, and the night comes for the big drama, the big uh, college days drama. And again, I've never been there. It's my first time here. I didn't realize this auditorium would be packed with thousands of teens from across the country, thousands of churches represented, thousands of churches watching on live stream. And so I redeem Ruth. The, the story goes through on the play. And right back there, when the time comes, I reach over there, and I grab her hand. <laughs> and the lights are just... Pause, and I stare into her eyes. I'm going to redeem you. You're going to be my beautiful bride. And in that moment, 2,000 people in this auditorium went, Oh! <laughs> and then the lights turned off. <laughs> Scene was over. Ruth went that way. Boaz went that way. She walked back to her dorm. I walked back to my dorm. The next day we went to Classes. The performance was over. The next play rolled around, I auditioned again. And I think, I think Dr. Getch learned from the last one, don't keep me around till the end of the story. Because this time he cast me as Stephen. You know what happens to him? A large group of people gathered around me right in front of that piano and they killed me in front of everybody. And I had to lay there, dead as a doorknob, holding my breath, not moving, until the lights went off. Scene was over. I got up, I went that way, everybody went that way. Performance was done. I decided to try out for one more play in my time here, and I was cast as Baal Priest number three. <laughs> you want to take a guess at what happened to Baal Priest number three? So I go from holding Ruth's hand to getting put six feet in the ground anytime I walk on the stage. (laughs) I really hope that doesn't happen today. Different lines, different roles, different outcomes. When one thing was consistent, they were all performances. They were all performances. Things were said, things appeared the way they did, all because at that particular time, certain people were watching. And listen, I understand, I did not realize this was the weekend of the Christmas drama and the Christmas performance, and so I just want to go on record and say there is a time and there is a place for the kind of performances that will be on the campus this weekend. There is a time and there is a place for for all those dramas and the dramas that we were participating in. The gospel was given out at the end of all of those, as it will be with the performances scheduled this weekend. There is nothing wrong with shaping your gospel presentation Around that kind of performance. But the Bible tells us today there is something severely wrong with shaping your life around a performance. With shaping your ministry around a performance. And it's a trap that anybody can fall into. Anybody. Let's look at what the Bible says. You've got your Bibles there to Galatians chapter 2. For time this morning, let's pick up the story in verse number 11, please. The Bible says in Galatians 2 and verse 11, But when Peter was come to Antioch, Paul says, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come... He withdrew and separated himself, watch the phrase, fearing them. Fearing them which were of the circumcision. You know, when you read the New Testament, you will find the Apostle Paul was not afraid of confrontation when it came to standing for truth. Even in the first 10 verses of this chapter, Paul recalls a time where he stood against Judaizers who had come there to Antioch telling the Gentile believers that unless they were circumcised and unless they adhered to the whole law of Moses, they could not truly be saved. It had to be Jesus Jesus. And, Jesus and. And Paul stood up and Acts chapter 15 tells us Paul and Barnabas stood up and confronted that false doctrine. It's not Jesus and, it's Jesus period. It's Jesus alone. That's what still saves anyone today. And the Bible says at that time there was no small dissension. In other words, they had a great debate A great argument. It was no small conversation over what true salvation was. And I remind us this morning, that is still an important doctrine to stand for. It's still important to stand for the truth of Jesus and Jesus alone that saves. And so it was determined that they all go to Jerusalem to settle the issue, because that is the church and the area from whence these false teachers had come from. And there it was to be decided, what do we do with these Gentiles who now have been saved? After the big debate, after the council back in Jerusalem, the Bible tells us that James, a prominent leader in that Jerusalem church, he penned out a letter to all the Gentile churches that Paul had helped establish at that time, and here was their ruling. James said in that that letter, these guys that have come and they tried to get you to go back to the law or to uh, adopt the Jewish law, he says they did not come from us. That is not our teaching. If you have Jesus, that's all you need. You have Jesus, your doctrine, your salvation is secure. Now he did ask them to adhere to some things, not to offend the conscience of a weaker brother, but he said with Jesus, doctrinally, you're on board with us. And that is what Paul has just finished rehearsing to these Galatian churches right on the heels of this. Now we find another instance where he has to stand for truth. This time he must stand and call out none other than Peter himself. He said, when Peter came to my church and when Peter was around our people, he said, I withstood him to the face. I set my face against him. I stood up. I looked him in the eye. For he was to blame. For he was in the fault. He was in the wrong. That makes us ask the question, Peter, what did you do? Peter, what did, how did you act? How did you behave? What happened that made this man, the Apostle Paul, get so angry and say, I've got to put a stop to this? To put it simply, Peter was putting on a performance. He fell into the trap that we all can fall prey to. And understand, my assignment this morning is not to come here and not to look at a group with wonderful, uh, 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 wonderfully dressed and wonderfully Christmas sweaters and say, this is you, this is you, this is you. That's not my assignment. My assignment today is simply just to show us from God's Word What this can be. What this trap looks like. What the danger is when we frame our lives with a framework of performance. So what does it look like? What red flags, uh, what do we need to learn so red flags can pop up if and when this shows up in our lives? What can we learn about a performance-based motivation? Can I just share with you four statements that have been a help to me and I hope will be a help to you quickly this morning? Statement number one we find in this text, performances shape our behavior negatively. Performances shape our behavior negatively. Paul tells us exactly how Peter behaved in a way that was double-minded. And it all had to do with his eating and association with Gentiles there in Antioch. Verse 12 told us before certain Jews came from Jerusalem, Peter had no problem eating with this group of people. He had no problem with whatever was set before him. No dietary restrictions, no more kosher restrictions on Peter at this time. He had no problem eating with whoever was sitting beside him. Gentile, that's fine. Until certain people showed up at Antioch. Jews who had been circumcised, they did follow those dietary regulations who had separated from Gentiles in the past. And the Bible says those men dictated how Peter behaved. No, not verbally. They didn't pull him aside and say, you have to do this and what are you doing? No, but mentally to Peter they did. The Bible says when they, he saw them that he withdrew from the Gentiles. He withdrew. That's a term that's used in military strategy. It's when troops draw back from the enemy in order to, uh, to secure a more stable position. It's the equivalent of retreating. Retreating, running away, turning around. When the Jews weren't around, Peter's all eating. He's fine. He's buddy-buddy with them. And then when the Jews do show up, you know what he says? Oh, hey, I'm going to retreat. I'm going I'm to go this way. He acts one way here with this group, and then he acts another way with this group. The Bible goes on to say how Peter's actions rub off on others. Look at verse number 13. Verse 13 says, the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Dissimulation, dissembled, that is the Greek word hypocrisis. If it sounds like another word we're familiar with, it's the same place we get our word hypocrisy. And that is where the performance aspect ties in. The word refers to an actor who would play different roles and wear different masks. See, back in these days, the theaters did not have the grand Hollywood budgets of today. And so actors would play multiple roles. They would put on multiple masks and have multiple parts. That's what the word hypocrite really speaks about. Acting one way in one circumstance and totally different in another circumstance. And right now, that's Peter. The same Peter that sat on a rooftop in Acts chapter 10 and and just three times, not once, not twice, but three times God came and showed Peter what you thought was unclean, Peter. Now it is clean. It's okay. The same Peter that went off of that rooftop and he went down with a group of Gentiles. He went to a Roman centurion named Cornelius and he preached in his house, a Gentile house. And he preached to Gentiles. And you know what Peter saw? He saw that Gentiles can get saved. Oh, how many of you are glad that Gentiles can get saved this morning? And Peter saw them get filled with the Holy Ghost. And he recognized, wow, the same God that saved me. And the same God that's changing me. He's the same God that can do that for you. And then there was the same Peter that was there in Acts chapter 15 at that big Jerusalem debate, at that big Jerusalem council, when he and Paul and Barnabas and others stood up and said, no, no, it's not Jesus and, it's Jesus alone. Peter, what are you doing? Peter, this is not you. But it is how he's performing. Because when you minister... Under the pretense of somebody you're not, it shapes your behavior negatively. It shapes your behavior negatively. Can I give you a personal illustration of this? Dr. Getch, believe it or not, I remember the same message you talked about this morning. I do. I remember it was my senior year of the preaching marathon. My senior year, I'm thinking, man, maybe my last chance to preach in front of this pulpit. And so I studied and I worked hard and prayed up, of course, but then I made a grave mistake. I decided that in my preaching, I wanted to try and emulate the preachers that I had heard and the preachers that I had listened to and learned from. And so I studied and I studied and I prayed and I got my three point outline. I got my poem. I mean, three points in a poem in a 10 minute message, that's a lot to do right there. And then I watched the guys that would come in and the messages that helped me so much. And I learned not only did they've got those points and they've got the alliteration and they got all that stuff down, but you know what a lot of them also had? They also could memorize everything. And so I decided I'm going to memorize my 10 minute sermon and my poem. And that had been a problem for me in the past. I mean, I've been in some plays, obviously. I had not memorized the lines there. And so uh, right in, the, in Revel's building, on the, the first round I preached and, and everything went off without a hitch and it was fine. and felt pretty good about the message. And and then my name got called. I got to go to the, the second round and I was uh, preaching right here from this pulpit. And the poem was after the first point in my message from Revelation. And I did the introduction and I, and I gave the first point and it was time for the poem. And I stood right here and And for the first time in my life, my mind went blank. I forgot everything. I froze. And I stumbled, and I, and I got through the next message, and the next point, I just went on to the next one, and, and I finished my message. And I, I remember walking down those stairs, and I, be honest with you, I, I wasn't really in a good spirit. I probably should have stayed for the other guys that were preaching, but I just, I just went back. I made a really, really long, slow walk back to Lawrence Hall. You know, I learned a lesson, at least me, I had to learn a lesson that night. I learned it the hard way. I learned in an embarrassing way, but I learned this lesson. God created me to be me. God created me and wired me and my brain and my gifts to work a certain way. And it's not the same as He created and He wired other people. He did not create me necessarily to be a carbon copy of somebody else. That's the beauty of the local church according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. God places different members inside the body, right, as He sees fit. Some have this gift, some have this ability, that that analogy of the body. Some are the, the toes, some are the hands, some are the feet. I don't know where my gifts apply in that. I'm not sure I want to know. But some of the different abilities as He sees fit. Now, we are to be unified in doctrine, unified in doctrine, but we're not necessarily uniform in our gifts and our abilities. God created me to be me. And so if, if that's God's plan, He does this as He sees fit, then, then why do we fall into this trap then? Why do we fall into this trap? Well, that leads us to statement number two. Performances not only shape our behavior negatively, it makes us be people that we're not. Number two, performances stem from the fear of man. Performances stem from the fear of man. Did you see at the end of verse number 12 with me again? Why did Peter withdraw himself? Why did he retreat away from those brethren? Because he feared them. Other brethren, which were of the circumcision. Now he was not fearful of these Jews because they had the power to persecute him like Paul used to do. Or like I uh, portrayed over there with Stephen, you know, with stones getting thrown at him. Not physical stones. But in his mind, he was worried maybe about verbal stones. What are those people going to think? What would they say about me? And can I tell us this morning that that thought process still cripples many believers today? Well, I hope, I hope, I want to be picked as a room leader, I want to be a dorm soup. How about this one? Has anybody in this room ever been told this? You better behave a certain way. You better behave yourself because you're a preacher's kid. You ought to know better. You're a preacher's kid. And Can I say we do not do what is right because of who our earthly parents are. We should do what is right because of who our heavenly father is. We do what's right because God says it's right. He's the one that matters. Pastors and preachers fall into this trap too. We go to a preacher's meeting and we know we need the fellowship and we know we need to be around people and and we know also the question that's going to get asked. How's it going? How's it going? And so you can say, Man, things are going smooth and well. We're growing, or you can tell the truth. <laughs> well, the truth is, we just lost our core family, our adult teacher. The truth is, last week we had more funds invested in the refreshment table than we did in the offering plate. You're a Baptist church. The truth is, we we prayed and we we invested and we and we witnessed and you know that I, I, person told me they were going to come to the Christmas musical. I gave them tickets. I'm standing out there by the fountain. I'm standing out there by the fireplace. I'm I'm going to take them out to the, the Walther Center, the restaurant. And guess what? I ended up eating by myself. They didn't come. See, no matter who you are, no matter what ministry you're in, no matter how long you're served, there are insecurities inside of each and every one of us. Insecurities that everybody battles. But the Bible tells us in Proverbs 29 and verse 25, The fear of man bringeth a snare. The fear of man bringeth a snare. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Well, Christianity at our ministry or a Christian life that is just about performances and I do what I do just so I can keep up an appearance just because, well, I'm going to be the pastor or I'm going to be the youth pastor. Or I've got to give the appearance of a perfect marriage or my kids have to be up the appearance of a perfect kids that got it all together. The Bible tells us that may work for a while, but eventually that life is a snare. And the Bible goes on to tell us it's not just a snare to you. It becomes a snare to those around you as well. Because statement number three is this the Bible tells us performances subdue the best of men. Performances subdue the best of men. What did we read in verse number 13? It wasn't just Peter who got carried away in the act. Now there are other Jews under his influence, following his example, doing the same thing. Other Jews, plural, dissembled likewise. But in verse 13, the Bible only singles out one of them, doesn't it? It singles out Barnabas. Now why Barnabas? I mean, out of all the guys that are there, why did it pick out Barnabas? Well, let's go back and look at a little bit of the history here real quick. In Acts chapter 11, Barnabas is instrumental in helping either start this church or at least get it grounded in their faith. The Bible tells us there is a group of Gentiles that had gotten saved and Barnabas was sent from the church at Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. Barnabas, not Paul, not Peter, not James. Barnabas was sent. And the Bible says that when Barnabas came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. Wow, God worked in your life like He worked in my life. He exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. And when Barnabas saw the grace of God in their lives, he encouraged them, hey, you keep on. He discipled them and continued to do so. And there were so many people getting saved, so many people getting discipled. The Bible says he has to go back and bring Paul with them. Hey, I need some help. And so Paul, you come with me. He and Paul disciple these Christians together. fast forward to Galatians chapter 2. In this instance now, Barnabas is carried away with it. Their mentor, their teacher, their disciple-er, I should say. Now, now, why was Barnabas the one chosen? Why was Barnabas the one that was sent out to, to go and help that group? Well, the Bible tells us in Acts 11, in that very next verse, Acts 11 and verse 24, these are the credentials That God gives this man. God gives these credentials. Acts 11 verse 24. Barnabas was a good man. He was a good man. Full of the Holy Ghost and full of faith. That tells me that even good men, good women, faithful Christians can fall into the trap of living for the approval of other believers. Of shaping their ministry through the lens of performance, performances subdue the best of men. Final statement: I'm glad I want to leave you with an encouraging note today. Fourth statement is this: performances cease in the acceptance of Christ. Performances cease. In the acceptance of Christ. Have you ever broken a bone or had an x-ray? You know, you go to the doctor and the doctor, what does he do with those pictures? He holds them up to the light, doesn't he? And the light exposes, and the light shines through that light background. It shows what the problem is. Well, that's what Paul does in the remainder of this chapter. I'll let you read about it later on your time, but you'll find that Paul tells Peter to drop the act, and here's how he does it. He takes Peter back to the finished work of Christ. He takes Peter back to the gospel. He says, Peter, you're compelling these Gentiles to live in a works-based system. And at its base core, that's what performance-based ministry is. What can I do? How many people can I save? How much can I accomplish? And he says, Peter, don't you remember the message we're preaching to these people? We are not saved because of what we do. We are saved because of what He did for us. Peter, when we stop the act, when we humble ourselves, when we come to Jesus just as we are, openly, transparently, broken, flaws and all, Peter, that's where grace meets us. Because a broken person, a person who doesn't have it all together, you are just the kind of person that grace is for. Grace is for broken people. Broken people like me. And the grace that saved you from the bondage of sin is strong enough to save you from the bondage of men. The grace that saved you from the bondage of sin is strong enough to save you, deliver you from the bondage of of men, That's really what Galatians 2.20 is all about. As you continue reading the chapter, it's in the context of Paul's response to Peter's performance. He said, I am crucified with Christ and nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but it's Christ that liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh by the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. See, when you live through Him, When you live through His power, when you live through His love and through His approval, your ministry and your life takes a different shape. It can then be framed around obedience instead of performance. Obedience, not performance. And that is so much better. Because when your church has a high day, and my church maybe doesn't, I can still rejoice with you. Because a win for you is a win for me. We're on the same team. Really, it's a win for Jesus, isn't it? And when you hurt, I can hurt with you. And when I pray, and I labor, and I invest, and I stutter and stumble, and sometimes even forget the words that I'm supposed to say, and yet somebody somehow still responds, I understand, it's not me, it's you that did that, God. And I rejoice. And when I pray and when I invite and when I anticipate and maybe I don't see the fruit that day. I I, I can still go home and I can put my head on my pillow that night because I know my Savior does not love me any less. My Savior does not view me as a failure. I am loved. I am accepted. I am one of His children and that will never change. And on top of that, on top of that, I get to. I get to serve Him with my life. I don't have anything to offer Him, but He wants to use me. And whenever ways that God does use us, boy, that feeling that you get is greater than applause. It's greater than any invitation of man can ever give. It's a joy that comes when you rest in obedience. I'm doing what I know God wants me to do. And so this morning, if you've fallen into the trap of performance, can I kindly tell us that the time for the performance is over? Let's get back to the place where your life is about pleasing Him. Because the best life is lived for the audience of one.